All right, well, we are in a series uh, called JC and the OT because we couldn't come up with a better name than that, so it rhymed. Um, no, we uh, started off the series, and the real reason behind it is we're studying, by the way, if you didn't know, Jesus Christ in the old. Look at y'all, so smart. Um, the reason we're studying this, truthfully, is, is for a couple different reasons, but one of the primary ones is for many of us, if we were to take kind of a survey of our wealth of, of biblical knowledge, uh, we're fairly fluent in the New Testament. Uh, that is, you know, what happened once Jesus showed up on the scene. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John document the story of Jesus' life uh, in, in a good amount of detail. From there, you have a lot of letters that were written to the churches about Jesus, how to live, the book of Acts, which is kind of the story of the early church. But what takes up most of the pages of the Bible is the Old Testament. And for many of, us, many of us, as we look at the Old Testament, uh, there's a lot of text, there's a lot of information. We don't really know uh, how it all pieces and is put together. And truthfully, uh, for many of us, the way that we kind of view what happens in the Bible uh, is that all of a sudden God decided that the old way wasn't working. I need to do something different. And so here, let me give and show my son on planet Earth as a little baby. But the truth is, is that couldn't be further from the truth of what happened. In other words, for many of us, it's like a kid on Christmas morning. Uh, perhaps, you know, you remember this when you were little. Um, you walk downstairs or you walk, you kind of out of your bedroom or whatever it was. And you go and you look at, there's all these presents under the tree. And then there's usually this like one like mammoth present, you know, or maybe there's kind of like medium-sized present. Or maybe there's no present at all. And you're like, oh man, you know. But you walk down, maybe there's this like, you know, stereotypical bike with this big bone. And you're like, oh my gosh. And it just, it's magic, you know. And then as you grow up, you realize that oftentimes when Santa makes toys, he doesn't totally put them together, right? And so sometimes dad has to partner with Santa at about midnight the night before Christmas, and he kind of puts some of the toys together that Santa just, you know, man, Santa's so busy, you know, and everything that happens. So, you know, dad kind of puts the rest of that stuff together. But it kind of just shows up, and it's magic, and there's not this appreciation or understanding for all the work, all the thought, all the payment, and all the way that was created before the actual morning of. But as you grow up, you realize people plan, people shop, people spend, people save, and some people even go into debt trying to create this Christmas morning. In other words, to really understand it and see it, is to see not only what happened in the event, in the aftermath, but everything that preceded that specific event. And so what we wanted to do was go through the Old Testament and show that the entire Bible revolves around the person of Jesus. And today we're going to talk about one of the most extraordinary people in the Bible. You've probably heard of him. His name's King David. You might have heard of David and Goliath, but we're not going to read that story specifically today. We're going to read about King David, but before we do, I want to kind of connect the dots as to what's happened, and, and let me tell you why. The story of the nation of Israel is extraordinary, and it's compelling. And for many of us, as we are able to grasp the narrative of the Old Testament on a meta scale, it helps us to understand why in the world Jesus was so important and so significant. Because it started, as we talked about week one, with this promise. In fact, it actually started as Adam and Eve sinned. They ate this fruit, which we call apple because whatever, but they ate this fruit and then there were some consequences to what they were going to have to happen because of the fact that they sinned. But before the consequence came, they declared what was called the proto-gospel. God said, basically, I have a plan. I have a plan. I have a promise that I'm going to redeem mankind. And since the very inception of our separation from God, God declares, I have a plan before there is even a consequence to our sin. 
continues on. He travels forward. There's a guy named Noah. As that goes, that happens. There's a guy named Abraham. And many of you know Father Abraham because Father Abraham had many. And many sons had father. And I am. And so are. All right. Now Sunday school's over. So Father Abraham, Father Abraham, God gave a promise. God said, Abraham. Picked him out of a nation. Abraham didn't do anything to, to, to deserve this. There wasn't a sense of righteousness. But God said to Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to bless the entire world through you. And I'm going to give you this land to possess. And he said it over and over. Abraham, this is the promise. This is the promise. And then God did something with Abraham. He created a covenant that was based on God's faithfulness, not Abraham's faithfulness. And God said, you are going to be my people, and I am going to be your God. And even though you are unfaithful to me, I will forever be faithful to you. And sure enough, Abraham would eventually have a family that would eventually become the nation of Israel, that would become enslaved in Egypt. As the family kind of migrated and moved to Egypt, they'd eventually become enslaved. And as they became enslaved, they, they, the oppression grew and the oppression grew, which means the family grew, the family grew, the family grew. Because if, you know, if, if, if the people who rule over you are awful, the only thing that you can do to have fun is make babies. So that's what they did. You can just pray about that on your own. But I'm telling you, read the Bible. They just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And all of a sudden, this great nation, Pharaoh became so overwhelmed because this, this nation, this family, this Israel is so robust We've got to persecute him harder. And God raised up this leader called Moses, who we learned about last week. And Moses would eventually, through a crazy set of circumstances, deliver the nation of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. They would walk through the desert for a little bit, and God would give them these commandments, typified in the ten, but he would give them hundreds of commandments. And these commandments weren't to say, Abraham, I gave you a promise but that promise is superseded of unconditional love and faithfulness is superseded by this new set of rules and morality. He was to say, no, there is a cumulative story that's being told that though I am going to be faithful in the middle of your unfaithfulness, Israel, I want you to see how unfaithful you are and not because I hate you, but because one day I'm going to send someone to save you, and I want you come to come to the realization that you, in fact, need saving. You see, the, the point of morality is, yeah, that is God's will, that is God's design, that is God's you know, uh, design and, and urge for us on earth. But it's not that we would ultimately be good with God because we did so well. It was to come to the realization that we can't. And so the nation of Israel... We go through the desert for about 40 years. Moses, as he's about to die, goes up on this mountain and gives us what we have as the book of Deuteronomy. If you ever read the book of Deuteronomy, it's a fascinating book. When you read it through the perspective that Moses is about to die, the nation is about to go into the promised land that God has promised, that God promised way back with Abraham. They're about to go for the first time ever and actualize on the promise that God's given to them. And, and this is basically Moses' entire book of Deuteronomy. Do not forget the Lord your God. There is going to come a day, there's going to come a time where you're going to be so extraordinarily blessed, you're going to think it's because you did something special. But do not forget, the Lord your God, when you go into the land flowing to them with milk and honey. <laughs> so we're like, so he went to Publix? You know, that doesn't... But he continues. 
do not forget the Lord your God because you're going to think it's by your own hand and by your own works. And sure enough, Joshua would then lead as, as Moses died. Joshua would lead the nation into the promised land. They'd go through about seven years of just of, of, of war and fighting and war and fighting and war and fighting as they would continually grow and continually grow and take new properties and take new places. As that continued on, the nation had this setup that God was going to be their king, that they didn't need a king. They had a theocracy. God was God, and they didn't need a king. That God was ultimately going to be in charge, and God would speak through prophets to the nation, speak through people to the nation, but the nation would become disobedient, just like us. And they'd wander away from God, and they'd rebel against God, and God would raise up what, what the Bible would call a judge. That's not like our judge, Judy. They would raise, he would raise up a judge that would essentially be a military and a political leader that would restore the nation, lead the nation back to God and out of rebellion. Seven times that happened. Then there's a guy who walks on the scene as a prophet named Samuel. And God talks to Samuel says, Samuel, I want you to know that the nation's going to ask for a king. But it's not going to go well if they want a king. And sure enough, the nation would basically say, God, we don't have a king. We have these judges, and yeah, that's kind of helpful. But every other nation has a king, and we want a king just like every other nation. And God would say, it's not going to go well. It's not going to go well. It's not going to go well. They'd say, we want it. We want it. We want it. So finally, God said, fine, give it to him. They elected this guy named Saul. Saul, who at first had extraordinary humility, but then became big in his own eyes, as the Bible talks about it. God removes his blessing from Saul, and now the idea is Saul is still king, but God's about to put a mark on somebody's life. So the prophet goes to this guy named Jesse's house. I wish that I was Jesse's girl. But he goes to Jesse's house, and as he goes, he says, okay, I want to talk to somebody. I want to talk to somebody, and I want to talk to, you know, somebody in your house. One of your, Jesse, one of your sons is going to be the next king of the nation of Israel. <laughs> to which Jesse says, okay, let me get all my sons together. Gets all of his sons together except for one. He looks at him and says, nope, 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 nope. You got any more? Now, let me say this. Like, parents, if you're in here, you know. Like, you would never do this. But this is how weird David was, okay? Because David made a living in his father's house tending sheep. I want you to think about your social and emotional IQ if you spent your entire life talking to sheep day and night out in the fields, like, you know, sheep one. I don't know if you had names with them or not, you know, but I'm, I'm sure that things got weird out in the field with the sheep. Not like weird, weird, but, you know, they just, anyways. Y'all need to go to church. Anyway, <laughs> so this, this guy, the sheep tender, his name was David. And he looks at him and says, yes, you are going to be king. And event after event after event after event, David continued to gain popularity, continued to gain leadership, continued to gain a following. And one day Saul died. But David didn't just become king. There were people who, when Saul died, thought this other guy should be king, and some people thought David should be king. And they not only thought that this person should be king, they thought that God had appointed him to become king. Now, this broke into both a civil war and a holy war. Either of those are bad, but when you put them together, it was so extraordinarily gruesome. David finally emerges 
as the king. Chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, he gets named king. Chapter 6, he makes some declaration, the, the ark of God, which, which went around in a tent. It was basically this big tabernacle that was this really nice tent that the presence of God was on. And in chapter 7, we pick up a story where David now talks to the prophet Nathan. And in this story, God unleashes a promise. And we're going to talk about this promise, but we're going to focus a lot on the response that David has to the promise of God and what we can learn from that. So if you got your Bible, all that to say, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. Now when the king, this is David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king, being David, said to Nathan the prophet, and this is where Nathan the prophet kind of enters the scene of the pages of Scripture. He says, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar. (laughs) To which most of us would be like, bro, you need to update a little bit, like recessed lighting. But that was uh, extraordinary wealth in their day. (laughs) See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God, in other words, the place that is the presence of the temple of God, dwells in a tent. And, And here's why. For the longest time, the nation of Israel had been fairly nomadic. And so when they wandered through the desert, God had created this place that was this temple, that the presence, it was the the representation of the physical presence of God on planet earth. This place, this thing was so holy, but it was this glorified tabernacle that was essentially a tent. And so David looks at it and says, man, God, I have this beautiful house. I have this beautiful palace, but here's my God who got me to here. Here's this God who has placed me in this place. And God, you're living in a tent. And so I want to build you a tent or a house. See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan, being the prophet, said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Problem was, as Nathan was kind of wrong, which he's about to realize in verse 4 and 5. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. He said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Now, I've got to admit, I read everything through the lens of sarcasm, okay? God is actually honored by this. I imagine him saying with the tone of, wait, you think you're going to build me a house like you? You know you, and you ain't that good. But the truth is, is God is more so in in tone. He's honored. He says, wait, you're going to build me a house? Well, let let me clarify some stuff. Verse 6, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling in all the places I have moved with all the people of Israel. Now, this is, this is really important because here, here's what God's saying. As long as my people were in a tent, I was in a tent. As long as my people were in the desert, I was in a desert. That I moved with and I dwelt among my people. Now, this was so different than any other God. Gods didn't identify with people. Gods lorded it over people. Gods didn't move and travel with. God was a stationary place. It was a temple. It was a thing to be worshipped. And yes, this was too. But God's saying, hey, no, I moved around with you as you moved around. Now, here, here, here's, here's where you can't miss this. This is, this is where the Old Testament ties in with the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 14. John describes Jesus as the word, the logos. 
They said, or John says, as he's recounting this idea of Jesus, he says, the word became flesh, the logos became flesh, the God became flesh, and it dwelt among us. Huge thing that's really easy to miss because our, our, we don't really read Greek. The way that actually reads is, the word became flesh, God became flesh, and tabernacled among us. What John's communicating is, hey, in the same way God moved, he was interacted, he was on the same level, he was in the same place, he was in a tent, as long as my people are in a tent, I'm going to be in a tent, as long as my people are going to be in the desert, I'm going to be in the desert. He said, the same character of God that moved around and dwelt among his people in their tabernacle is now tabernacling with us in the person of Jesus. He said, so I was there the whole time. In all the places I moved with all the people of Israel, did I, not, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to, my, to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He says, no, 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 I never commanded anybody to do this. But David, here's what I want you to know. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following sheep, which I feel like they would be like, yeah, thanks, thanks for reminding me about that. I was kind of over the whole sheep thing. From following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And have cut off all your enemies from before you. And David, and then he begins to declare this promise. He says, David, and here's what I'm going to do. In very similar language to what he said to Abraham, in very similar language to what he said with Moses, he says this to David. And I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people of Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, declares the Lord, to you that the Lord will make a house. Or the Lord will make you a house. Now, now, now here's, here's what's interesting about this. David begins by declaring, God, I'm going to make you a house. God, it's not right for me to have this beautiful palace, this beautiful place, and yet you don't have a house to live in. And God says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. You're not going to be able to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house to which we would think, okay, well, he already has a house. Is he going to get like a vacation home? Is he like a little mountain house? But, but here's what the word house meant for them. It kind of had a double entendre in that house both meant a physical house, a palace, or a dynasty. And so God says, I am honored that you would want to build me a house and I am going to make and create for you, David, a dynasty. I am going to make your name great and he's about to tell him what he's going to do through the people. Now, as he says this, here's what you need to know about prophecy if you're ever going to read this in the Old Testament. They didn't delineate between current events and future events, and they were oftentimes intertwined or inter inter kind of mingled. It's kind of like if you have like a telescope, you know, and the whole thing, you know, you have the long and the immediate, and then it just kind of all flattens it into one simple statement or a series of them. So this is what he says. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. who shall come from your body 
and I will establish his kingdom. But David, through you, I'm going to establish a kingdom. Well, God, we're already a kingdom. Yeah, but this is going to be a different kind of kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, at this point, David would have said, what? Forever? My little girl, she's about three and a half years old, and she's like, whenever she enjoys anything, she doesn't have this concept of like, I enjoy it now, but you know, this isn't going to last forever. So we're like at the zoo, and she's you know, saying, Dad, can we stay here forever and ever and ever and ever? I'm like, hun, these elephants are going to get real old, okay? We don't need to stay here for, but he says, David, David, I'm going to establish through you a line, a lineage. I'm going to establish through you a kingdom that will never end. This is why when you read the gospel accounts, they start with, or at least two of them start with this idea of let me create, let me connect a lineage from King David to Jesus. Because this was the proclamation. David, through you, I am going to establish, I'm going to bring, there is going to be a leader who will create a kingdom that will never, ever, ever stop or end. Now, David was, I'm sure, taken aback at that point. Goes back to his son in current time, or David's son. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Now, this, this was huge. Because what God is saying to, to him is this is, hey, I know you saw me remove my blessing from Saul when he sinned and when he went away from me. But David, no matter how bad it gets, this is my promise to you. David, no matter how crazy the, the kings, no matter how bad the lineage, no matter how many left turns the kingdom takes, I'm going to establish my promise with you that your kingdom through your lineage and through your line will be established forever. If you ever read the prophets in the Old Testament, a lot of times, man, you're reading, there's just doom and gloom and God's gonna do this and doom and gloom and God's gonna do that and doom and gloom and God's gonna do this. Punishment, punishment, condemnation, condemnation. And oftentimes we see it and we say, well, in fact, the next couple of weeks, we're gonna start reading into some of the prophets. But we see it and we say, well, why would God do that? Why it just doesn't seem like it's the character of God? But in this, God is declaring, I am not going to remove my blessing, but there are going to be consequences for your sin. That's our experience, right? That though we sin, there are consequences. We face the discipline of God. And God would say, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. If you do it, it's going to be bad. If you do it, it's going to be bad. It's going to do it. If we, it's going to be bad. And oftentimes we see, we say, why would God be so punishing and vengeful? <laughs> he wasn't. He was like any good parent who said, I'm serious. If you don't quit and you put your hand on that stove, it's going to get burned. So please don't you dare do that. If you keep screaming bloody murder in public, right, I am going to snatch that little hiney up and we are going home. We are going to turn this car around. Because it would happen. They would be unfaithful. In your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And your throne shall be established forever. 
Now, now here, here's what I want you to see in this. We're going to spend our last few minutes talking about. When it comes to David, he was in awe that God had chosen him to be a conduit through which the promise would come. His response was, God, that I can't. God, who am I that you would allow me to do this? Now, as, as much as David was the conduit of the promise, we are the recipients of the promise. But the truth is, is we live so much in the wake of the promise who was the person of Jesus. We feel entitled to the promise where he felt honored to be a part of the story of the promise who would be Jesus. Let's read his response here as he prays back to God. This is what he says. He says, Then King David went in and sat as before the Lord and said, he said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes. In other words, God, everything that you've done in my life, God, that was just, that, that was just a small thing compared to what you were about to do. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. It's almost like he's scared at that point to say forever. He's like, so like you said forever, right? Like I'm just going to say a great while. I don't want to overcommit you, God, because that sounds crazy. But you know, for a great while. And this is the instruction from mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. I love David's honesty. He's thinking, God, you know me. You know I'm sinful. You know I've messed up. You know, God, you remember the sheep. Okay, we're, you know, forget that part. And in fact, David would continue to sin. And David's saying, you know, God, you know me. What, what, what can I even say back to this? I mean, this is crazy that forever you're going to establish a throne through my lineage, through my house, through my family, that forever there's going to be a kingdom. So that's crazy. But it's because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, verse 22, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And there is no God beside you, besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem, to be his people? Not that his people deserved redeeming, but God just chose that I'm going to want to redeem you. Making himself a name, doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom redeemed for yourself to Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O oh Lord, became their God. God, you, you chose, you redeemed. Let's get down to verse 26. This is kind of his declaration. In your name, will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. In other words, God, who, are, who am I? Who are we? That we would be a part of this, that we would be honored to be able to be a conduit of your hope, 
of your promise. God, that you would us, God, you know us, and God, you are great. God, it wasn't because we were great, God, but you just chose us. You redeemed us. Now you're using us. Now you're going to bless the nations. And now there's going to be a kingdom that forever will be set up. Because here's the thing. God, the entire time, from Adam to Jesus, had a plan of redemption. He had a plan that he declared from before there was even consequence for the sin. He had a promise that was declared through Noah. He had a promise that was declared through Abraham. He had a promise that was declared through Moses. And he had a promise that was declared now through David. And it would be declared, in fact, through lots of different leaders and lots of different prophets. Because here was the thing. God had a plan. And when they experienced it, he felt honored. He said, God, who am I that I should be able to even be a part of this? Like, God, you know me. You know my history. You know the sheep. In fact, God, you know what's going to happen when David didn't even know what was going to happen. David would later do some crazy things. He'd send people into battle. He'd have adultery with another man's wife. And when she got pregnant, he would call that man. And when that man wouldn't go lay with his wife so he could cover up his sin, he would then go send him into battle and have him killed. God said, yep. Because my faithfulness to you is not based on your obedience to me but on the promise. There's this understanding that you get to be a part. And and here's what we know. That through Jesus, God actualized the promise made through the prophets, made through the kings, made through the patriarchs. That God said, there's going to come one. And again, on Sinai, God declared, if you want to try to earn your way into my good graces, here are all the laws, here are all the requirements, but it's not so that you can earn your way, it's so that you can come to the realization you can't. That perhaps you actually need a savior. And I don't want you to miss it. In fact, I'm going to intertwine, and I'm going to weave, and I'm going to create this story of the redemption of man. And that he sent his son as we're getting ready to, to celebrate in this Christmas season, as we're waiting in anticipation, like the nation of Israel waited and waited and waited and waited for this hope, for this promise, God said, there's coming, there's coming, there's coming a promise. And now, we get to be recipients of the promise. But I think, unfortunately, for many of us, if you're like me, the truth is, is because we live so much in the wake of the New Testament, of the story of God, of God's redemption of people, that God came down and recorded history, performed extraordinary miracles, and died on a Roman cross, that we just kind of feel like we deserve it. We expect it. I remember not too long ago, a couple years back, actually, when we first started as a church, we um, adopted kind of this youth group that was... um, a lot of students who came from a lot of disadvantaged backgrounds, and as we uh, we get to know and really kind of you know just develop great relationships, and there's just one student that I was really close with. He kind of you know ventured from student to as he graduated, became more of a friend. And, and when he was still in high school, it was kind of later junior senior year, um, we were driving down uh, actually, actually Appalachian Parkway, and a lot of you guys remember there was this wonderful um, place on Appalachian called Toys R Us, <laughs> R.I.P. Um, and when I was little, man, we would go to Toys R Us, and that place was fantastic. That was like, that wasn't like, oh, living the dream. That was literally the dream. 
Like I wanted to stay there forever and ever and ever. And if you ever got hungry, they had like candy rows and Twizzlers and all kinds of stuff for days. And so I would get, man, it would just be this magical place with all this stuff. And my parents would say, you know, pick out a toy. And I would have this, you know, oh my gosh, you know, analysis paralysis, like which toy? There's literally a Walmart of toys everywhere. And I get one. Are you kidding me? That's an impossible task. And I would go and I'd spend so much time just trying to figure out, pick out that one toy. And then Christmas would come and I'd see this, you know, big toy. And I don't, maybe I'd see this kind of little toy. And then you kind of get a little older and there's not that big toy anymore. And it's like, so we just don't believe it's Santa anymore. Is that what happens at this house? Like, it's just not cool anymore. And then we were driving on Appalachian. And we were talking about, you know, I was like, oh man, I used to love going there when I was a little kid. But it was around Christmas time. He said, man, well, not me. You know, I, uh, and I was like, what? First off, who doesn't like Toys R Us? And he would say, um, it actually makes me sad. And I was like, why? And here was his story. He grew up in a house. Dad wasn't around. He grew up in a house that, in fact, not only was dad not around, mom wasn't really around either. And it was kind of just really in and out. And it was kind of passed from relative to relative to relative to relative. And Christmas in his house was very different than Christmas in my house. He was lucky to get anything. And not because he was bad. In fact, he was probably a better kid than I was when I was growing up. But he said, I mean, Christmas, it was sad for me. Because I knew I wasn't getting anything. I was going to go to school and everybody was going to talk about the presents and the things and the sweatshirts and the toys and the, you know, stuff. And I just thought back. I thought, man, I felt so entitled that I would get these big, incredible gifts because I had grown up in an environment. I would grown up in a culture that said, yeah, Christmas is a big deal. Christmas, you get everything. Christmas, we just, you know, empty out our wallets and empty out our credit cards and go ham on some gifts, you know, and we just thank Santa because he, you know, covers the rest of the stuff that we couldn't afford. But Christmas was, was, was huge. And here's what I realized. I had been so saturated in a culture that had this expectation that I didn't realize in the middle of it, my expectation had actually become an entitlement. And I think that's what we do with Jesus. I think that because we live in a culture, because we live in a place, because, live, frankly, in a country, no matter who you are and where you're from, net, net, we have it better than most of the people in the world. I, I think the truth is, because we are able to freely worship and live in a culture of grace in the wake of the death and the resurrection of the promise and his name was Jesus it just normalizes but this is what Paul says and this is the last verse I'm going to read this is what Paul says when you get this this is the response that similar to King David all of King David's prayer is basically summed up in principle in Romans chapter 12 verse 1 as Paul just intricately laid out the gospel he interwove this whole thing together and this is what he said well it's going to take me well I know it anyway so this is what he said he says this he says therefore therefore in view of God's mercy or I appeal to you brothers therefore in God's mercy Now, now here's what he meant by that In view of the fact that God sent his son to die for me, though I didn't deserve it, that there's nothing I did to earn it. In view of the fact that God, God of the universe, God, holy God, came down to planet earth. 
and died on a Roman cross for me that the promise that people had spoken about, the promise that people were honored and would give God anything just to be a part of the process of the conduit that I now get to be a recipient of the grace of Jesus Christ that God had been declaring for generations in view of God's mercy, his sacrifice for my sinfulness, that I now can be made right with God because of my sinfulness, because of his holiness. There was a rift that I could not pay, which the commandments proved. And in that, God saw it, gave his son for it. In view of that mercy, he says, to present your bodies, our bodies, as living sacrifices to God. As living sacrifices. In other words, anything, anytime, anywhere, my life is a blank check. Whatever you want, whenever you want it. He says, this is your spiritual act of worship. As some translations put it, this is your reasonable. In other words, this is only reasonable. If God would give that much for us, it's only reasonable that our lives would be totally for him. So at the end of all this, it's one simple question. Is your life a living sacrifice for God? Are you a blank check that says, God, not because I'm guilted into it, not because I have to, but God, if you would do that for me in view of your mercy, I'm a living sacrifice anywhere, everywhere, you name it, you say it, I will go no matter the cost. Because if you would do that for me, it's only reasonable that I would give everything back to you, my heavenly father, who I trust because you gave your son to redeem. In other words, is there stuff that you're holding back from God? Is there stuff that you're holding back from God? Maybe your future, maybe your plans, maybe your career, maybe parts of your relationships, maybe some family, maybe some finances. I don't, I don't know what it is. We all do it. I just want us to see the extraordinary mercy of God declared for generations, actualizing the person of Jesus that we now live in the wake of. And please, please, please help us. Let's not become entitled that we feel like we deserve Jesus. That was God's gift, not our earned payment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much that you declared for generations and generations and generations that you had a plan to redeem us to you. Through Abraham, through Noah, through Adam, through Moses, through David, through tons of different prophets and tons of different kings, you declared the promise of your faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness. You displayed it over and over. You displayed it in Abraham and Isaac. You displayed it as you tabernacled in the desert. And God, then you came down to planet Earth and tabernacled among us. And eventually died so that we could be made right with you, that we don't deserve it at all. And God, we aren't entitled to you, but we are so honored that we get to be a part 
of your story. We're so honored that we get to give back. We're so honored that we get to share your story, that we get to share your message, that we get to share the, the part of the kingdom of God that you have been spending generations declaring and upon Jesus, generations sharing the good news. So please help us. Whatever areas, whatever places, whatever relationships, whatever future hopes and dreams we are holding on to, God, would you please help us to totally surrender our lives to you? Because that's what you did for us. I pray that you would make us a bold. I pray that you would make us a passionate. I pray that you would make us a group of people who are living sacrifices and blank checks and our entire lives are for you, Jesus, but only in view of your mercy. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.